Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. We are, of course, dealing with um, the passage in 1 Thessalonians where Paul gives us all sorts of information about the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus. And we know that our hope is based firmly in the resurrection, which is, uh, which is good news for us today. Um, I don't know if you've heard, uh, but we lost our oldest, uh, our oldest living church member passed away in her sleep last night. Um, Miss Elizabeth Flegel went on to be with the Lord after uh, dealing with congestive heart failure for the last, uh, last several days. Um, and God was gracious, she passed away in her sleep. And I think that uh, that any of us would uh, would 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 love the the same uh, the same blessing after uh, almost a century on this uh, on this uh, this side of heaven. And so uh, uh, so we're grateful for her life. As uh, we know arrangements, we will pass those along. But uh, continue to pray for Miss Flegel's family and uh, as they uh, as they deal with the grief of of that loss. Um, back in 2017, our family took a trip up to Washington D.C. And I don't know if you've ever been to D.C., but, um, but you can't go to places like that and not be in awe of just the monuments. Uh, and again, politics aside, uh, the monuments are absolutely stunning. And I will say that one of the most overwhelming monuments in D.C. is the Vietnam Memorial Wall. And I had been to D.C. a couple of times before, but I had never actually been to the Vietnam Wall um, and just the sheer scope of that monument is, is just overwhelming. Uh, 58,000 names of those who were killed in action or who were listed MIA. And we were there during December, and so wreaths across America had come through and put wreaths on all of the, uh, all of the memorials. Arlington was covered in the wreaths. It was uh, uh, absolutely just a stunning thing to, to see. Uh, every name on that monument represented a kind of a roll call for those who had made the ultimate sacrifice. As you know, tomorrow's Memorial Day. We would be remiss if we did not take time to give thanks for all those who have paid the ultimate price in service to their country. While we were up there, we had another interesting spot to visit. Um, the Museum of the Bible had just opened up. If you're ever in Washington, you need to make sure that you spend time at the Museum of the Bible. It is worth the day that it takes to go through that. Uh, it is a, it is an, the people who run Hobby Lobby run the Museum of the Bible, so it's well done. Uh, and we got to go to that museum. And there was one exhibit that listed every single name that's in the Bible. And uh, here's a picture where our uh, youngest found his name there uh, as it's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, and again, I've not had the opportunity to visit this site, but there's another prominent memorial in our nation that has a list of names. This is the picture of the fountain at the September 11th memorial there in New York City. You know it when you see it, the massive square surrounded by the bronze walls bearing the names of the nearly 3,000 people who perished there in the World Trade Center attacks on September 11th, 2001. You know, we're very accustomed to seeing names carved into stone. Sometimes it's a stone marker that bears the name of our loved one, marking the location of their burial place. Other times we erect these massive monuments and memorials that call us to remember the deceased as a consequence of some sort of war or of event uh, or even terrorist attack as we had there on September 11th. You know, regardless of how we choose to memorialize someone, when we allow the Bible to inform our understanding of death, then we have to recognize that, that all of this is, is temporary. 
I actually think that death is probably more temporary than, uh, than, than these names carved in stone. I, I think that those names carved in stone will last longer than, uh, than actually our time in the grave, if I'm completely honest. Now, I'm not suggesting for any moment that we replace our headstones with dry erase boards, um, but we do recognize that the grave is only a temporary arrangement. It is not a, a permanent fixture. It is uh, the, the gravestone may be, but our time in the grave is only temporary. Last week, we started unpacking some of Paul's teaching on last things from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as I said, I believe this is Paul trying to fill in some of the gaps of the knowledge that the Thessalonians had because of the abrupt nature with which he had to leave. It would seem that in that church and that community, there was some confusion about the status of their deceased loved ones. And what we actually see is that it's still a matter of confusion today. If you want to um, find out how confused we are, just prompt that conversation about last things, and you'll find that there's a great deal of confusion that exists about these, these matters. But you know, there was an old Peanuts cartoon, that's Charlie Brown, um, where Lucy and Linus were talking, and Lucy looked out the window, and she said, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus, the theologian of, of, of Charlie Brown, he replied, he said, it'll never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow, which is the appropriate use of the rainbow as we enter into the month of June. And Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus responded, sound theology has a way of doing that. Uh, now, there's a lot of things about last things and death that we don't know. There's a lot of things that we don't understand. But I do believe that God has given us what we do need to know. We don't approach these things unaware, as Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We don't approach these things with a lack of knowledge. God has given us the information that we need in order to understand what we are up against. And so this information, and even though there are a lot of opinions about how we should interpret it, this information that Paul gives us is for our good, and it is intended to be an encouragement for us. If you've got your Bibles, we are in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, we will finish the chapter today, beginning there in verse 16. I would invite you to stand as I read these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning there in verse 16. You're familiar with this verse, I'm sure, as it's been taught and teached before. Beginning in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the information that you have given to us. And though we certainly understand, God, there's a variety of opinions and perhaps even confusion about how we walk through these verses. I pray that today that perhaps we may not answer all the questions or, Lord, even deal with all the confusion. But, Lord, may we understand this for what it is and, and apply it to our lives as we ought. Uh, Father, I pray that if there's any in this room today that have not yet received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that the understanding of these verses will help to give them clarity in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Last week, we took a really close look at why Christians deal with grief differently than non-Christians. And simply put, it's because of the resurrection. 
There's no other reason that Christians deal with grief differently than non-Christians other than the resurrection. Death, as we see it on this side of eternity, often seems permanent, but we understand that Jesus' resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all who are in Christ. And so we approach death with that in mind. Anytime we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that shadow is always illuminated by the fact that we recognize that death is temporary. It's a temporary arrangement because of the resurrection. Today, as we talked about last week, our deceased loved ones exist in what is frequently called an intermediate state. Their souls are in heaven with Jesus, and they're waiting for the resurrection. And because of that, we recognize that there's no biblical basis for things like purgatory, which is the Roman Catholic doctrine that says the intermediate state is a place where we face additional suffering that gets us ready for heaven. There's no biblical basis for soul sleep which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists teach that say we exist in an unconscious state until the resurrection. There's no biblical basis for what the Mormons do with things like baptism for the dead. Mormons believe that if you can be baptized for those who've passed on, that your baptism will somehow merit them into a better position in the levels of heaven that the Mormon church uh, uh, believes in. And so what we recognize is that if you were in Christ, and you die, your soul is ushered into the presence of Jesus into a place called heaven. Jesus called it paradise to the thief on the cross. We recognize that, we believe that, we hold that near and dear. If you've lost a loved one, you understand that your loved one has been ushered into the presence of Jesus. That is, a, uh, that is an assurance that we have based on the word of God. However, if you have rejected Christ, if you have rejected the offer of the gospel through Jesus, you will die and your soul will be ushered into Hades or hell where you will begin to pay the just consequences for your rebellion, your rebellion against God. Again, it's not popular. It's not something that the world says, man, I want to hear more of that story about hell. That's such a good thing to talk about. They don't want to hear that, but that is what we recognize from God's word. At the resurrection, those who were in Christ, their bodies will be brought forth from the earth. They will be glorified and perfected. It doesn't matter if they've been eaten by sharks, cremated, obliterated in a nuclear disaster. If they are in Christ, God will recombobulate those atoms and will bring forth a glorified body that will be immediately reunited with their soul. It will be glorified and perfected. Those who've rejected Christ will also be resurrected but they will face final judgment and be cast into the lake of fire as it is described in the book of Revelation. There will be a generation that is alive at the time and they will see this take place. Paul speaks of that generation here in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. But let me say this, we do not know the timeline of this. If anyone says, hey, I got this figured out, I can tell you month, day, and year, they're lying, they're a false teacher and you can call them a false teacher because no one knows the day or the hour, not even the son of God knows the day or hour of his return. If anyone, any denomination, anyone stands up and says, I got the time on the calendar, it's circled, false teacher, call them out for what they are. They are false teaching. There is no evidence to suggest that the New Testament believers, uh, or, or I'm sorry, there is evidence to suggest that those New Testament believers believe that they would be that generation who saw the return of Jesus. These people in the church at Thessalonica thought, hey, we might be that generation. So there, there is plenty of things to recognize that those who were being written to in the Bible thought maybe Jesus will come back quickly. 
However, in his grace, the Lord has tarried and he has given his church more time to preach the gospel to more souls. We are still busy taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel to people who've never heard it. We still see the gospel going forth into these dark corners of the world that have been, have been held hostage by false teaching and demonic, demonic spirits. We see the gospel tearing down those strongholds as we continue to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, what I have said thus far is, is what we would agree as being primary orthodox understanding of the resurrection and last things. We generally all agree on these things. When I say it's primary, I mean that it is true, and I mean that orthodox believers, regardless of the denominational affiliation, would generally agree with what I said. If you go hang out with a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Nazarene, they're all going to generally agree with what I have said. However, the text that I read just a few moments ago, well-meaning Christians from across the spectrum come up with different understandings of how this text works itself out and how these particular verses work themselves out. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is a little non-traditional for me. Normally I try to go verse by verse through text, but I think what we need to do today is to walk through a couple of the main ways people think about these things and then see if we can walk away with an appropriate application of the text in spite of the variety of ways that the church has tried to handle these texts. So this is a little bit of a non-traditional way. I don't normally do this, but I think it's important, particularly as we spend a couple more weeks dealing with these last things from, first, from the book of 1 Thessalonians. So in order to do that, I need to make sure that I clarify some terms because there's words that get thrown away. And, and we live in a world today where we have to clarify our terms. I mean, simple words that we used to know the meaning of. We don't know the meaning of those words anymore. And so when you enter into a meaningful conversation with somebody who doesn't think like you do, you often have to now clarify the term that you are using. So it's important to clarify these terms that we kind of throw around loosely because if we don't understand the terms, it's easy to get confused. So bear with me for just a little bit while I try to point out some of these terms as kind of a, a theological vocabulary lesson. If you see this word, eschatology, that's a big word, it's a fancy word, that's a preacher word, but it's a word you need to know. Simply put, eschatology is the study of last things. So when we're talking about things like resurrection, final judgment, we're talking about the millennium, the rapture, you hear all those things and you think, man, those are a lot of words that I don't use on a regular basis. You're talking about eschatology. When we talk about the word millennium, we're not talking about the Falcon in Star Wars. We're talking about something totally different. Much of the divergence in the church today revolves around this term. And again, this isn't just difference between denominations. I will tell you that there is divergency within the pews when it comes to this word. You look around and people around you are going to think, what does that mean? Or they're going to have an idea about it that may be different from your idea about it based on who they've heard preach about it or how they've personally studied through it. The idea of the millennium comes from Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. It speaks to a thousand-year reign of Jesus. Some people take this to mean a literal thousand years. Other people see that thousand years as more of a symbol of a really long period of time. And again, if we did a show of hands, I'm not. But if we did a show of hands, there are some people who would say, you know, I really think that's a literal thousand years. And then there's other people who would think about it and say, you know, that's probably more just symbolic of a really long period of time. You don't have to answer that right now, but you, it is good to kind of think through what you think about it. 
What I will say is that we need to extend grace to one another because this is one of these matters where well-meaning Christians throughout the years have thought differently about it, and it's important for us to be able to extend grace to each other and not, de- not be very dogmatic about it. Another term is rapture. That's, uh, that's when you're really excited. You've got rapture for something, not in this term, though. Let me say this, the term rapture isn't in the Bible. If you get your concordance out and you search for the word rapture, you won't find the word rapture in the Bible, but we spend a lot of time talking about rapture. And and how people understand the millennium determines what they believe about the rapture. Specifically, this term comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says that the church will be caught up to meet Jesus. That word caught up is where we get rapture, but it takes us a minute to get there. Because it's actually translated from the original Greek into a Latin version, and it's the Latin version where we get the word rapture from. So we had to take some steps to get there, uh, because the Greek word doesn't make nearly as much sense to say it that way. Simply stated, though, the rapture is what will happen to believers when Jesus returns to the earth. The rapture is what happens. Beyond that, a lot of disagreement in the church. And then the last term I want to make sure we understand is the term I would call great tribulation. It's from Matthew chapter 24, 24, verse 21. Jesus says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and it will never be, Jesus says. This refers to a prolonged season of suffering that will happen at the end. Traditionally, the church has said it's a seven-year period of time, and that comes from prophecy from the book of Daniel. The dramatic events that are described in the book of Revelation are generally believed to take place during that season of great trial. So when you read the book of Revelation, you think, where are these things happening? Generally, we think those things are pointing to that that period at the end during a time of great trial and great suffering. Thank you guys for hanging out and enduring that. So now we know what the terms are, so when we use them, they're helpful. Now, we're going to talk about those terms in the next couple weeks, so it's good to be able to hold on to those. As you can imagine, there is a great deal you can learn about these topics. There is a lot of reading that you could do on these topics. Books abound. I don't think it's an understatement to say thousands of books have been written in the 2,000-year history of the church about these topics. Uh, And some have been good. Some need to be thrown out. But lots of books have been written. And just like lots of books have been written, guess what also abounds in these matters? Opinions. Opinions. And the Bible speaks about these things in a wide variety of places, not just in the prophetic books. But what I want to do today is specifically consider Paul's words here and see if we can glean anything helpful, even if we don't have consensus on how those last days will play out. And specifically, the issue Paul brings to light here is this this idea of, 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 as the church today has begun to understand it, this idea of rapture. What does it mean? And, and again, you, you've probably heard things about rapture and you've got an idea of what that's about. You, you understand that, hey, isn't that something that's supposed to happen at the end, seven years before the end? Isn't that something where the church gets taken away and there's empty sets of clothes laying everywhere when it happens? Isn't that what that's about? Well, hang on. Um, there's four actual things that people think about this. And I will say this, understanding these four things is not necessary for salvation. And because it's not necessary for salvation, that means that it's, these aren't primary things. These are, these are a little further down the list. But people make them primary. They begin to elevate these things to positions of primary, uh, primary status where if you don't agree with me about this, then I can't have fellowship with you. And that's just unfortunate. 
Wayne Grudem said in the gold standard for study of theology, his big systematic theology textbook, he said, I think it's important for evangelicals to recognize that this area of study is complex and to extend a large measure of grace to others who hold different views regarding the millennium and the tribulation period. And I couldn't agree with him more, that it's important for us to extend grace to one another. And I don't have time to unpack all of these. Again, there are volumes, pages, millions of words have been spilled over this. And it all comes down to the fact there's lots of moving parts. And if you have a complex machine, and one part of that machine functions differently than than another part, then, then it's easy to see how we come to different conclusions. To understand all this, you've got to pull together Old Testament texts, gospel texts, Paul's letters, of course, the book of Revelation. There's all sorts of texts that get dumped into this machine to produce what we understand about last things. And a different interpretation along the way leads to different outcomes. Perhaps the biggest difference among believers today regarding what Paul says in verse 17 is when we are caught up together. And and that actually talks about the progression of events that will actually happen. And this is where all the charts come in that I alluded to last week. One position is known as amillennialism. Ah means no. Uh, And so what this means is is no millennial, millennial uh, period. People who hold this position see the millennium as a figurative period of time, not literal. As such, they would say we are living in the millennium right now, that Jesus is reigning in heaven, that those dead saints who've passed away are reigning with Jesus right now. And this view's been held by a lot of prominent people throughout history. One of the most famous was Augustine. Augustine was a pretty big deal back in the early church for helping us understand much about the things of God and much about theology. Uh, The event that Paul speaks of at the end of chapter 4 Actually, for, these, for people who hold this, believe that that event, that rapture, that second coming would happen at the end of that figurative time. Uh, there's another position called postmillennialism. People who hold this view think that the world is getting better and better as a consequence of the gospel extending to the ends of the earth. That view is, is sort of decreasing because what we're experiencing in our lifetime is this world is not getting better. Uh, it, it, is, it is getting far and far worse. Um, they see the gospel expanding to the ends of the earth, and as a consequence, the church is gaining in power, and that the millennium will come at the end of this, this time of, of utopia. Those who espouse this position are looking forward to that Christian kingdom that will usher in the events of 1 Thessalonians 4. Again, that one's not very prominent today. A third one is classic premillennialism. You've heard these terms before. This is a view that the thousand-year reign of Jesus is literal, but it happens after the resurrection. It suggests that the church will be present all the way to the end. The events of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 happen at the conclusion of that great tribulation. That means that the rapture and the second coming are one thing, and so the church has to endure the seven-year period of tribulation. And then the last one is dispensational premillennialism. This is the view that was popularized by Left Behind, and the books and the movies, this is a view where it's a secret rapture, where there's sets of clothing laying everywhere, where people were snatched away, and the world that's left behind is left to struggle and figure out what in the world this means for millions and millions of people to be snatched away, taken away in the rapture. Now you say, Pastor, I don't know which one I am. Or maybe you say, you know, I've heard a pastor preach that I ought to be ready, rapture ready. I've heard that, so, so which one am I? I'll tell you the one your pastor is, and I think that uh, I think a lot of your your I think all three of your pastors probably lean in this direction. What we call pan millennialism. What does that mean? 
That means that when we think about these issues, it really doesn't matter what my opinion is, is because God is in charge of it and it's all gonna pan out at the end. One of the things I've noticed as I've studied these things over the years is that my perspective tends to shift as I study these things. Um, and the thing I will say is that I'm always interested in conversing with people about these things who want to have a discussion about it, not who want to argue with each other about it. Uh, there was a little independent Baptist seminary back where we used to live, and they had in their statement of faith that in order to attend their seminary, you had to believe in a dispensational, premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture view in order to attend their school. And I asked the president of the seminary, I said, is this true? He said, this is absolutely true. You can't come to our school, implying that if you held any view different from that, that you were some sort of a heretic. And I thought, that's a, that's a stretch because we're making dogmatic that which we really don't have the liberty to be dogmatic about. But even as we look at these verses, specifically from 1 Thessalonians, there's some really straightforward things that we can see. For example, if you look at verse 16 of chapter 4, it says something absolutely stunning here. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. What does that mean? I'll tell you what I think he's, what he's alluding to here. You remember when Lazarus was in the tomb? And, and Jesus didn't just walk up to the tomb and use the force to raise Lazarus from the grave. That's not how it worked. When Jesus approached the tomb, what did Jesus do? Lazarus, come out! He called Lazarus forth from the grave. He, he, he used his voice to bring Lazarus forth from the grave. And so what I hear when Paul says there's a cry of command, I really believe that this is the moment when Jesus says, come out of the grave. I heard one preacher said that he actually had to call Lazarus by name because if he hadn't used Lazarus' name, that every dead body in the sound of his voice would have come forth out of the grave. And so when Jesus comes back and there's a cry of command, I believe he is calling forth the dead from the tombs. He, he, says, a, he says a cry of command. He, he talks about the fact that there's a voice of the archangel. There's an angel, a powerful angel, that is declaring his arrival. Imagine a king walking into a palace, and there is a sentry who comes in front of that king and says, here is the king. That archangel is declaring to all who can hear that the king has come. And then there's that trumpet. There's that trumpet that will sound. Again, this royal procession, the king is returning. The king is here to conquer. The king is here to, to finish the mission. People who say that this is secret haven't read this. There ain't nothing secret about this. I don't believe for a second. If the rapture happens before the tribulation and there's sets of clothing sitting everywhere, all the movies portray, well, golly, bum, what happened? I don't believe that's going to be like that for a second because my Bible here says that everybody's going to hear when this, when this shout happens. Everybody's going to know that trumpet has been blown. Everybody's going to hear the king when he returns. No one's going to say, where are all them people go? People are going to say, the king showed up. Won't be any denying that fact. It's not secret. It's noticeable. People will hear it. People will know it was there. If you look at verse 17, again, Paul talks about we will meet him in the clouds. And I've always looked, that's, that's odd. What if Jesus comes back on a sunny day? There's no clouds to, to meet him. It's a pretty day outside the day. If Jesus came back, we wouldn't have clouds to meet him. And then I said, oh, wait. When I open my Old Testament and, and God shows up, what does God always show up in? 
a cloud. When God inhabited the temple of Solomon, when Solomon brought forth, the, Solomon dedicated the temple and God showed up at the temple, he showed up in a, in a cloud. When, when God showed up on top of Mount Sinai to meet with Moses, the, the top of Mount Sinai was consumed with what? Clouds and smoke. It was glorious. And so this is not about us floating ourselves up in the sweet by and by into the, the watery mist in the heavens. This is the king of glory showing up in the clouds of his glory. <laughs> it will be something to see. Which again, this is no secret. This is no no one, this isn't going to be something that happens that the world's like, well, where'd they go? I don't believe that for a second. When Jesus comes back, Jesus will come back in glory, and we as God's people will meet him in his presence in the cloud of his glory. We will behold the glory of God. And we'll be in the first time in our lives where we are perfected and can withstand the glory of God. So the question if the church, four different ways of thinking about this, and those are just the main ones. There's some that say that rapture happens like three and a half years into the, into the great tribulation. There's all kinds of charts, y'all. So if there's so much division over this topic, again, if we just break it into the four camps, what are we supposed to do with this? Do we just throw it out because it's too complicated, it's too confusing, we just don't worry about it? I'll say this. Paul makes this very clear in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That means that this topic is supposed to be encouraging, not divisive. This topic is supposed to be something that we talk about and it excites us. When we bury our dead, this topic is one that's supposed to say, this is not the end. There is more to come. There is glory awaiting. There is more to be said. There is more to come. This is not a divisive issue. Paul did not say Donald Trump is the greatest president ever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You'll get it in a minute. Paul spoke of the, the second coming of Jesus. And said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is supposed to be something that we celebrate, that we rejoice in, that gives us great, great joy. It should be an encouragement to us. If we lose sight of Paul's intent here, and we get hung up on charts and timelines and timetables and all those sort of things, we really miss the point. The point here is not for us to get hung up on timelines, but to really realize that this is an encouraging thing. Again, Talking about this, it makes for lively conversation. It makes for spirited debate, but it should not damage our relationships. If, if I'm an amillennial and you're a postmillennial, we ought to be able to sit down and have coffee together. We ought to be able to, to, to sit down and fellowship together. We can come have a steak together, right? I mean, that, that's the reality. I absolutely encourage you to study these things more and decide if you lean to one perspective or the other, I'd love to talk to you about it. But you settling the issue in your own mind and heart doesn't give you the theological high ground to crush your opponents who think differently about it. That's not what it's for. It's no longer encouraging when it always leads to an argument. If we're hung up on a seven-year period of suffering and that I don't know that I want to go through that, well, you may not. But we need to stop we need to, we've got to pay attention to what Paul says there. He says, we will always be with the Lord. 
If, if you go through a, a difficult season, I understand that's tough. You will always be with the Lord. If you went through a thousand years of suffering, it doesn't compare to eternity. The Bible talks about our momentary light affliction. Your life may be tough right now, but if you are in Christ, you have got an eternity with Jesus in heaven. This should be an encouragement for us. And your loved ones who've fallen asleep, I can assure you that they're not arguing with Jesus about any of these things. And I can assure you that on the last day, when these events unfold, nobody's going to tap Jesus on the shoulder. Lord, you're doing this wrong. This is not what I thought it, how it was supposed to go. Not a soul. Not a soul. Encourage one another with these words. Secondly, worry less about the rapture and more about the roll call. Emperor Constantine was the emperor responsible for Christianizing the Roman Empire. He famously delayed his baptism until he was near death because he didn't want to sully the act with the less than righteous activities of being an emperor. Now, he incorrectly believed that baptism was necessary for salvation. But the only problem, if he did believe that with such a strategy, was that there was the very real potential that he died in battle before he had the opportunity to be baptized. And so let me just say that if you're banking on an act to save you before you die, you better be careful because you may not get the chance to do that act. And so Constantine thought, I'll just be baptized at the end of my life so that I'm guaranteed a smooth ride into heaven. You can have all sorts of disagreements about the timing of the events in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You can have all sorts of theories and opinions about how that timeline works out. You can have your charts. You can have your Schofield Study Bible. You can have whatever you want and be a master of this conversation. But I'm going to tell you what matters way more than whether you can have an intellectual conversation about amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Is your name written in the book of life from Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Because it won't matter which position you take on the millennium because there's a book in heaven and written in that book is the name of all the redeemed. You can have the most well-reasoned understanding of the end, but if you miss the gospel, your view on the end is not gonna help you at all. You don't get to stand on the day of judgment and say, Lord, but I understood the rapture. I understood the millennium. I understood all of these things. What did you do with the gospel? What did you do with the Savior? We understand this. Our world is becoming a scarier and scarier place. I've often heard it said over the last 20 years <clears throat> that it's starting to look more and more like the world described in the book of Revelation. And I'll say it today. And if the Lord tarries, I'll probably say it 20 years from now. It's looking more and more like that world. The things that we see unfolding around us are, are frightening. We see patterns in place, things in place today. We say, we say, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility to think of a, of a barcode or something being necessary for you to be able to participate in buying and selling. That's not outside the realm of possibility. 
It's not beyond the realm of possibility to think that there's one world government that could arise. Those sort of things we see today, we say, you know what? That sounds more and more likely. As we go more and more into this, into this journey, that sounds more and more likely. And maybe you're playing the long game. You know, I, I'll get this right eventually. But I've got news to tell you today. You're not promised your next breath. You're not promised your next breath. And it doesn't matter what you think about the rapture. It doesn't matter what you think about the tribulation. It doesn't matter what your opinion is on the millennium. It doesn't matter what your opinion is on any of those things. If your name is not in the book, your eschatology is irrelevant. There's an old gospel hymn. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore when the roll is called up yonder I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder will you be there? I'll tell you this, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you'll be there because your name is written in the book. Otherwise, you won't be. And that is both the most encouraging thing I can tell you this morning, and for some of you, it's the most discouraging thing I can tell you this morning. But let me tell you this, it doesn't have to be that way. Doesn't have to be that way. Some of you probably remember <clears throat> some of you probably remember these old things. These old boards hung up on the front of the church. Some churches were progressive and they had this on one side and the hymns on the other side so that so that everybody could go ahead and mark their hymnal. You know, get the get the bookmarks ready so you know which hymn to sing. <clears throat> this is before things got printed and things got put on screens and all those sort of things. And these old boards communicated something about the church. How many people came to Sunday school? How many people showed up for worship? How many people came this year over last year? That was one Baptists were always interested in. If more people come this year than they did last year, then the church is growing, otherwise it's not. I can't help but think there's something similar in the kingdom of God. It's probably a little more advanced than this. But somehow or another, there's a tally that's kept. But it's more than just a number. You know, Baptists, we can count anything. Good Baptists can count things twice. But far too often, we are more worried about our spiritual counting than we are actually giving account. The Lord knows his sheep. He knows you. If you were his child, you know his voice. There are some of you here today, we could put your number on this board, but your name is not in God's book. You can be counted here, but in the book that matters, your name's not there at all. The Bible says God is patient. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. You know what it tells me? 
that board's got room for you. There's a spot. There's a spot. The only question that matters, if you know the board in heaven's got room for you, if you know there's a blank in the book that your name can go, do you have room for Jesus in your life? Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for giving us what we need to know, for giving us these things to allow us to think about and think hard about, to wrestle through some of the confusing things. But Lord, even when we don't have a full picture, Lord, none of us know what that day is going to be like when we cross from this life into the next. None of us know what the resurrection is going to be like. But Lord, what truly matters is not the conclusions we reach there. What truly matters is have we dealt rightly with the gospel. We understand Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect life, who was our substitute. The wages of sin is death. Jesus took that wage. He made that payment on our behalf. But it isn't doled out just anywhere all the time because we recognize that it is a gift that must be received. The, the offering of Jesus' life, his sacrifice on the cross, is extended to all. But we receive it through repentance and by faith. Lord, we understand that there is a clock that is counting down. For some, that clock is counting down personally. But Lord, for the cosmos, the clock is counting down. And there will come a day where you make a new heavens and a new earth, and those who are in Christ will reign forever in this new creation. And God, we are so eager for that day. It doesn't matter what we think about these things. If we've not first done business with the Lord. So God, if there's any here today that have yet to repent from sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus, then God, give them the courage to take my hand or another pastor's hand, another leader's hand, say, I want to know what it means to give my life to Jesus. I want to make sure my name is written in the book. God, we know we're not promised our next breath. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. So God, we can face that uncertainty with confidence and with hope if we will follow Jesus. God, in these next few moments, would you move? Would you call the names of those whose names are not yet written? And let today be the day that that blank is filled in in the book of life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.